My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. This thread in the podcast tries to address a deficit in skills that are fundamental to feeling a kind of security and empowerment. The skills that I focus on are those that are related to fulfilling our basic needs, food and shelter and crafts, and the pleasure that can be derived from those and the meditation, the feeling that you can empower yourself in ways that are life nurturing through the acquisition of these skills, through a great reskilling of the world into being primary producers, into understanding how we make shelter, how we produce food, how we can do crafts. And that something about that seems to really help people feel the connection to materials, feel a connection to the soil, and those connections build out from there, connect to a feeling of security and well-being. So the ones that I want to focus on in this episode, as we come to release it in Imbolc, in Lola Breed in early February, which is the time when we've passed through the winter, our deep dreaming and things that have been asleep underneath, at least in my hemisphere. It's been the time of darkness and rest and potential for renewal in the earth. People in this hemisphere start to think about spring because signs of spring emerge. That is what the celebration of breed, the spring maiden coming back into life and rebirth. This moment you can see Around me, I can see the things pushing up from under the ground, young growth just appearing, even though there's been some cold snaps still and they continue. And we've even had some snow recently here in Ireland. Birds are looking for nest sites. Spring is on its way. The signs are there in the landscape around me. In connection with that is the beginning gardening cycle, the time when the last winter things could still happen. Before you see leaves coming back out on trees, you can plant bare-rooted plants and bushes. It is a time when any composts that haven't gone back out on the garden can be put out, have time to rot while you get on with planting new seeds. And so those two things are what I want to talk about in gardening. How do you plant a seed? What kinds of compost are there? I'm going to start with compost because All the life in the ground right now 
is based on everything that has rotted in our cycle into the ground over winter. So when the leaves came off the trees, when plants died back into the soil, that's nature's version of what we talk about when we talk about making mulches and applications and surface dressing of soil and composts. In other words, there's a cycle of renewal that comes every year in deciduous trees and plants that die back in the kind of climate conditions that I live in. And all of that gets eaten up by life in the soil. So there are creatures that come, slugs and and other types of crawling and creeping millipedes and wood lice and lots of different soil creatures and then worms all the way down to bacteria that break down all of those leaves and living plant matter that has fallen on the soil. And as they do that, they release the nutrients into this web of soil life. It makes it available again in a form that plants will come and connect into it. And there's the bacteria and the fungal networks in the soil. They all help to distribute all that nutrition that has come from the biomass above and being integrated into what is in the cycle in this hemisphere and the cycle of the soil that happens at a much, much faster pace in the tropics where anything that falls down into the forest floor is is so rapidly taken back up, it's practically back up in the biomass in, in just matters of days sometimes. But in our soils, in my climatic conditions, it's a longer process. It's through the colder months, so the time it takes for the creatures and the bacteria to act is a bit slower. In either case, the soil acts as this great battery or the energy of the sun. As the energy of the sun is what the plants are thriving on during the time of year when it's at its zenith, when the sunlight comes in and the leaves open up and as I said, they're beginning to do that in the ground right now. They immediately are photosynthesizing and capturing this incredible energy of the sun that is why we are full of abundant life on this planet. That solar energy that is captured by leaves at a level of efficiency that goes so far beyond anything humans have designed in terms of a solar panel to capture sunlight. The photosynthesis of a leaf captures all this energy translates it into sugars, translates it into energy that flows throughout the system that we eat and other creatures eat. And so the return is humus layer getting broken down and it composts within the soil, within the bacteria. And I describe all that because that helps understand what it is we're mimicking when we grow annual plants through one season. So something that is an annual plant is something that you sow the seed of it every year and it grows and at the end of that year it completely would die back and die and if it was in its natural condition it would have set seed and those seed would begin again at this time of early spring and it would just do that cycle every year annually over and over setting seed seed landing in fertile soil battery life-giving medium giving some of that ingredients to give energy back more than it would open back up to the sun, would generate even more energy and photosynthesis and, and go back around the cycle. So when we're trying to grow something that's an annual plant that we wish to harvest and eat some of it during its cycle, we need to mimic the conditions 
than it has in a natural cycle. If you imagine that in a forest system where the young spring greens come up as they are right now, the ramsons, the wild garlic, and it would be being grazed and eaten, it would die back and it would replenish the soil and creatures that grazed on it or ate it, they'd poo on the soil, that would get returned into the soil. It would just happen naturally in a cycle. But if we have an annual garden, a vegetable garden, what we do is we eat the nutrition. But unless you have a full integrated system of human manure and composting, we're not returning that nutrition directly to the soil. So we do it indirect through the making of garden compost. And garden compost and making garden compost can really confuse people a lot. It is a simple recipe like grandmother's bread recipe. There are variations as to what goes into it, just like grandmother's bread. The basic ingredients are there. Things that are dry or brown kinds of ingredients. So like imagining the dry brown leaves fell on the ground, the straw kind of brown parts of plants with stems and stalks as they dry out. In a human system, newspaper and cardboard, because they are similarly these more woody parts of plants. And all of those is one half of the ingredients of a compost heap. They are considered the carbon materials because they're the woody, stalky, strawy, paper, cardboard material. And then the other half of the materials that go into the heap are considered the wetter ones, the green materials, things that have not turned to that more tough, woody part of the plant, so the leafy parts. And that also includes wet peels from the kitchen, it can be grass mowings, it could be young, fresh tops of plants and weeds. They are the green materials. And those materials then are the nitrogen materials. And it is this mix between carbon and nitrogen that kicks off a chemical reaction and bacterial reaction that get inside of the compost heap and heat is generated. And in order for that to be even more activated, there are some of the other ingredients that often go into a compost heap that are really like in the recipe sense. They are the baking soda or baking powder or yeast. They're the activators. And those are things that help get more bacteria into the heap easily. So bacteria-rich materials are animal manures, seaweed if you're near the sea. You can think of the smell of bacteria and seaweed even fish parts, they are, are full of activated bacteria that get in and start developing a part of the breakdown. In the early part of the heap, there are detritus feeding creatures, these slugs, for example, that aren't the ones that eat the young leafy greens, but will eat rotting plant material. There are centipedes and millipedes and wood lice and a kind of worm that comes in that's a compost worm like a tiger worm or brattling worm. And they are part of the breakdown process as well. And the contact with soil is important to allow soil bacteria to get in. So a heap that's sitting on soil, even if to allow a certain amount of air, so it needs aerobic circulation for the bacteria to activate well. But if it's sitting maybe on some twigs and then, and if the heap is in contact with soil, it allows bacteria from the soil to enter the heap. One more activator that people use sometimes 
is called liquid gold, which is basically peeing on your compost heap. And that can activate it with a nitrogen kick, get it going. It's good to not let the heap get too dry. Too much of the carbon material and the recipe is out of balance and it becomes too dry and very little happens. And too much of the nitrogen material, the wetter material, the green material, and it becomes saturated and sodden and kind of a slurry and a slush and there's not enough air in there for the bacteria. One thing in Ireland is that it's often a good idea to cover the heap with some kind of a carpet or cardboard in the winter especially in very rainy parts of the year because otherwise it can get too saturated and then you're really washing nutrients out of the bottom of the heap into the surrounding ground rather than capturing it in this rich compost. And so that breaks down into a kind of fibrous, soil-like looking matter. It doesn't have to be completely beautiful, crumbly compost. I think you only see that as garden compost on YouTubes and television programs when somebody sieved it. Because what it's like is more fibrous. All of the plant material is mostly broken down. You can't recognize things in it when it's ready, but it has broken down. And that can vary. In the summer, that might take a month. If you're working your heap and turning it and getting it to kick off again, then it can be very fast indeed. In the winter, if you leave it alone, it tends to sit and be there for more like two to three months before it's ready. But coming into the spring, coming into in Bullock, um, this is a very good time to empty the heap out and put it over the ground and cover your vegetative matter that's there. It might have been a cover crop you put there or you could pull back if you've covered it with straw or you've covered it with carpet. It's a great way. The worms will bring down the rest of that compost into the soil and it kind of covers it. And if it is rained on, then at least the nutrients are going straight into the bed beneath ready for you to plant new plants into it. Just to add another explanation about this word compost, what I've been describing there is the practical skill of making garden compost. And you will find lots of variations in people's recipes, but those are the basic ingredients and methods. However, people also talk about something called potting compost and something called seed compost. And both of these are possible to make at home. Potting compost is something that I make out of my wormery. And the reason that I use the wormery rather than the garden compost heap, and so I can be a little more selective about what goes into a wormery. I put in peels and I can put in cooked food, leftover bread, and you can even put in any natural material in cotton and linen and wool if it is done and spent and threadbare. You can't put in synthetic materials, but you can put in natural materials and worms will eat everything. You can put in cardboard. They just go through everything. And what you get is a compost that is about six times more fertile than the garden compost I described. And what I do then is maybe mix that with something like leaf mold, which you can also make just from gathering brown leaves in your garden and leaving them. They can take quite a while to break down. You can put them in a wire cage or even an old sack and they'll break down into a mush. Um, and you could use that because that doesn't have a lot of fertility, but it can help 
add a bit of organic matter. And the reason that you would make your potting compost, as I've just described it like that, is because you could be more sure that you're not putting in any weed seeds or any weed roots. So things like docks, you could be a little more careful. And then that would mean that you'd have a potting compost that wouldn't come up with lots of new seeds in it from the annual seeds that might germinate from your soil if you throw whole plants into your compost heap. In general, I have a separate heap for anything particularly tenacious like dock and dandelion and creeping buttercup. I don't even put those in the heap I was describing earlier. I just put them in what I call a perennial weed heap. And then I use that compost more carefully, maybe in beds that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to or going to get a thick cover crop on them so that I don't end up with a lot of weeds coming up in my garden beds. The one I've described with the worm compost and leaf mold, that's got quite a lot of fertility in it. So you can use it for anything that's quite hungry in a pot. Like say you're trying to grow some very small amount of vegetables on a patio or on a balcony. You could use that in a pot and put in, of course, some climbing beans in the same pot and put, give them some support and add some lettuce around the base and that'll still have enough fertility in it then to give your plant enough nutrition and maybe add some garden soil at the bottom as well to give the good soil bacteria. The seed compost is the one you want absolutely no other weed seeds in and so you have to prepare that a lot more carefully and you often have to also sieve it because if you want it to be fine enough crumb for it to just touch off of little seeds. So leaf mold is very good for that, but it takes a few years for you to build up. So a lot of people do buy in organic circles peat-free seed compost, and that is made usually from some kind of waste green material. And sometimes if it's a potting compost, which you can also buy organically, it might have something of some kind of fertility, some green material in it, and sometimes uh, even fish wastes can be used to, to make potting composts. I always want them to be peat-free and not to be part of extracting from already depleted habitats and bogs, but rather part of something that's a cycle like I was talking about earlier. So those are some information about potting composts seed composts, garden composts, leaf mold, and worm compost. There's lots of information about all of these things. And like I've been talking about on this thread about practical skills, it really is about getting out and trying some of them, even in a very small way. A good sized garden heap for compost is around a meter by a meter by a meter. You can make that out of a pallet. But once you start using it, once you start seeing it break down and how quickly it can break down, you kind of smell the goodness of it. It shouldn't stink or go off because it's got not enough oxygen then and see its results in your garden. It is the difference between really healthy plants to give them good soil, good bacteria in the soil and good compost applications on the soil. And it takes some years of practice to go into this very deeply if you're producing a lot of food and you really wanted to understand the soil science. There's amazing information about all of the creatures and the exact ways that they release and 
uh, nutrients and how plants interact through the fungal network and take up those nutrients and how they interact with bacteria. We teach a lot of that. I have classes on permaculture and soil science and so on. But it's really exciting to see how alive the soil is. It's like a safari of creatures in there at the microscopic level, little nematodes and all these whirling bacterias. Uh, it's a whole lot going on of predators and things that are getting eaten, slow things and fast things. So I hope that intrigues you enough to potentially start a compost heap because it's one of the very best ways to begin the cycle of producing no waste. So either because you've bought some organic seed compost or because you've managed to access some very old leaf mold, the next skill that I want to talk about is sowing a seed. And something if you've never done that before, it is really a miraculous thing to watch and to get to know how to do. Something I always do when I am teaching children is to give them a seed and let them have a sunflower or a pea plant, something really robust that's likely to germinate well for them and climb up and let them see it. You can even do it in damp paper uh, wrapped around inside of a jar and pop a bean there and watch the shoot and root come out of a bean. It's really wonderful to do. And that's the first way, if you want to see how seeds germinate, is just to take some damp paper that's absorbent and keep it moist and sprinkle it with seeds. And you can get all of the vegetable seeds will give you a shoot. And that shoot you can use and eat in your soup and your salads and raw in your sandwiches. And people might have done that. Um, cress was very popular when I was a child. We used to grow cress for our sandwiches. But you can do that with any vegetable shoot. You can just use that with peas. You can buy seeds for sprouting and you get these lovely sprouts that you can eat. Uh, many, many things will sprout for you from, from a vegetable. So that's a good way to just see how a seed does germinate. And then if you want to grow them into plants, you need some kind of seed compost because they need a little bit more fertility than they would get on damp paper. On damp paper, they're getting the moisture and they're getting the contact with something and they're getting light. These are all things that seeds need. But they need to touch soil and go in and get a small amount of nutrition till they open up their seed leaves, which are like opening up their solar panels, and they start to photosynthesize. And then their little roots will go down deeper and pick up nutrients and then they can manufacture their starches and, and continue to grow and have all the cells that add on to the little tiny shoot daily. Some are faster than others to germinate. And one of the things that's important that I find, especially for beginner sowers, is the size of the seed itself and the depth in which you sow it. Because watching people do this practically, what I often see is people put in seeds that are very small, too deep. It's a hard thing to judge if you read the packet and it says put it down a quarter of an inch or a half an inch or something. I think often that only really refers to pushing a seed down that's a quite a big seed. So something big like a bean or a pea, like a broad bean, is a very big seed, very good one to try as a first seed too. It's really very lightly to germinate for you. So a broad bean you would push down a bit but you're really only pushing it down so that it's in contact with the soil and gently covered. Because when you have your seed tray or your module or a yogurt pot or inside of a toilet roll, 
um, to fill with your seed compost, what you're trying to do is have lots of room for the root. So you don't want to push it way down in the module because you're using up all of that depth of seed compost. So all I do is if it is a bean or a pea, I set it on the surface of a filled module or filled container and I just push down until it's just below the surface and then I just brush gently with my finger a little bit of the seed compost over it. If it's smaller than that, I mean, I think the next smallest would be beetroot seeds. They're substantial enough to see and feel in your fingers quite easily. Smaller than a pea, but not tiny yet. And they're similar, but if them you just push gently because they don't need to go very far. And the same thing, just very gently cover them over. But for almost everything else, all that's really needed is that when you have your trays or your modules or your containers filled up, just pat down the soil, one little dip, a small, small dip into the top. And then you set your little seed in there. And again, really gently, you just ever so gently put it in contact with a small amount of the seed compost over it. You're really barely burying it. And then when you, another thing to pay attention to for this is when you water little tiny seeds is to use something really, really gentle, a light spray of some kind, or there's some really um, simple ways to make a little like a rose head off on the cap of a, of a bottle. You can pierce tiny little holes in a bottle cap and just put a sprinkling of water on them to keep the soil moist, to keep that seed compost moist, because it's that moisture and that contact that'll help it to germinate, but not saturate. And if you pour a big watering can, you probably bounce half the seeds out of the tray. So you want to just be really, really gentle. There's one seed that doesn't like even to be covered at all. It's the tiniest seed, and that's celery seeds. Celery seeds are really, really small seeds, and that even that little dip is too much for them. So celery seed you just sow on the surface and you don't touch, just drop it down onto the surface. And it's so small it will be in contact. And again, really gentle watering. So I'd very much encourage you to try out that practical skill this spring. You can have a look at what's possible to sow now as we come into the spring in February. There's a great list of things that you can try. I think some of the easiest ones would be the early peas, the early broad beans, and maybe some of the brassica salads. So those are things like Rockets and Mizuna, Mabuna. There's some great names and there's some good seed companies in Ireland that supply you with those kind of leafy greeny salads. And one of the things about something like that is that you can decide to sow a whole sprinkle of seeds at once. I tend to use a module that's quite small and then I just put one seed in each of the little gaps and then I can push. There's a kind of hole in the bottom of my modules and I can pop my finger down the bottom and push them out and lift them out very easily to plant once they're big enough and hardy enough to go on to the next stage, either potted on into some potting compost if the weather's still very severe or if I'm going to put them in a pot, I can put them into maybe a, a covered area or a windowsill or a greenhouse or if they're good and big and hardy, then they might be good enough to go outside. And for those ones that you sprinkle as a bunch, that is something you can do with seeds that's called cut and come again, salad leaves. And you can do those in something like a window box where you sprinkle just a whole lot of the seed in. They'll come up all together. And when they're at a height that you're ready to eat, you just snip them with the scissors. And sometimes you can get 
two, maybe even three cuttings of them that they'll come back. And so that's the brassica salads or a cut and come again salad. And the other thing you could do is to sow those every week. So you could maybe have three to five window boxes and you start and you sow one of them in the first week and a week later you sow another, a week later you sow another and then and so on. And then that gives time for you to be cutting a new one that's come up while another one is regenerating and that can keep you in salad leaves for weeks and weeks from just a very small container. Because I always think of them as the baby stage of the plant so they need a lot of attention and then when they move on to having more leaves they you can get away with not checking the moisture of them quite so often. They still need to drink but they're not quite so vulnerable as they are when they're just the first tiny little seed needs to stay moist throughout its germination process. And then when they're a bigger plant, they're a lot hardier and I tend not to put mine out in the ground until they are a lot hardier because that can help combat things that want to eat them like slugs. To take that skill further, I'm putting links in the listen notes to some of my favourite resources in Ireland. But if you look, there are growing numbers of resources for people who want to start growing some of their own food. So I really hope you try. There's nothing quite like eating something you've grown yourself. The last practical skill that I'm going to touch on very briefly is working with knives. Because I talked on the first practical skills episode about the fact that I had started spoon making, I'm going to just talk to the idea for someone who hasn't used a knife at all and I'd said maybe don't start with spoon making and the curved blade but start with whittling. So I just wanted to give a couple of ideas for how you can start with whittling and just a few very basic tips for what you might think about if you're going to use um, a knife for whittling. So whittling just means working away with small pieces of wood and a knife and seeing what you can come up with. The first thing, of course, is the choice of knife. There is some lots of phrases and old adages about the hardest cut is the one with the dullest blade. And what that refers to is that if you're having to push really hard because you've got a dull knife blade, then it's easier to slip and the force that you're putting behind it might lead to a deeper cut in a person. So the first thing is to get a good, sharp, whittling knife. Of course, there are pen knives and there are different kinds of knives that fold away and have a little locking device on them. One thing about those is that they can slip from the position of open to locked. So the ideal one for a beginner is a small bladed fixed knife. So it's got maybe a good sized handle and quite a small but sharp blade. And then that's a really nice knife to start with. So the first thing is get a knife and make sure it's sharp. And then afterwards is to keep it sharp. Now, there are really an awful lot of techniques for sharpening knives and there are some very handy little tools now that you can purchase that you just drag the knife through a few times and that keeps the blade sharp. But it's also good to learn what are the basics and understand how a blade sharpens and it's called keeping an edge on the blade. And you can't really go wrong with experimenting. It's very hard to ruin a blade, especially a good quality metal blade can always have an edge brought back onto it. So it's worth experimenting just to see and check with a piece of paper, will it cut easily or a tomato or something and just tell and how you might try 
if you don't have a sharpening stone, is to use different grades of sandpaper actually along the blade or to attach those to a block and pull your blade in one direction and push it in another until you at a kind of an angle, just a slight angle off of the sandpaper until you kind of raise up little bits of the metal burr both ways and then see, can you see this skinny edge that you're using to cut with? There are stones that you can do it with and there are endless videos on knife sharpening. So that is something that you can do by practicing it, having got a few of the techniques and a few of the tools. The only other thing to say is that you can start, you've probably been told to start with always putting the knife away from you. And that's a good rule, especially when you're starting, because you want to make sure that the blade, if it slips away from your control as you get used to holding it, is to make sure that it won't cut you. But eventually you do need to learn the control of coming towards you for some of the kinds of shapes and cuts that you might want to have. Maybe when you're beginning, you can wear a good glove. There are some really tough gloves that will protect you from sharp. One of the things that I do sometimes is I know the the places that I might be going to raise a blister if I'm really doing a lot of work with a knife, or I know the place where I might, I don't really slip and cut, but I may be chaffing with the knife blade as I cut towards myself. And so I sometimes wrap, pre-wrap my fingers in areas that I think are vulnerable to that chaffing with a uh, plaster thick plaster already. It's a bit like I've put a plaster on before, risking cutting myself. But if you are going to go towards, you need to get really comfortable with the feeling. And just one of the things to do is to not be trying to do really deep cuts and to have a nice piece of easy to cut wood is a good start. A soft wood, not a hard wood, and what's called a green wood, meaning it's quite fresh off of a tree. So a small branch, something like a ash tree or an apple tree or hazel, even willow. They're all quite nice soft woods. And what you want to do is when you have the branches that you, you want something that's not got a whole lot of knots in it or difficult parts, but just something with, and that you can work along the grain that you're not cutting across the grain. And what that means is that a piece of wood in a tree is like a bundle of straws. So if you imagine taking a lot of chopsticks or straws and, and tying them together in a bundle, that's kind of what the grain of wood looks like. And so you can imagine if you're cutting kind of into that, that's harder than if you just run along the edge and slice off small amounts of the grain of just one of those straws. So that's enough to start out. And there are just a few things that you could try from the very beginning. You could make little people, simple little stick people. You can make worms. The one that is a good one to move on to is a little bit thicker piece of wood or branch wood and to make some simple birds because you can really get into shaping at that point and working on the detail. And it's a lovely skill for all ages and you just have to be aware there are risks there are associated so you figure out the best ways to protect yourself while you learn. Then when you get more confident at maybe, you know, pair, a bit like paring an apple. Um, and if you've used a knife in the kitchen, then you've got some of these skills already. And it's just a matter of applying them to this tougher material of wood. So for some people, that might be a skill you want to try out.